want to share with you today with the title, Christianity is about good, not evil. This week, stateoftheology.com, which is a research arm of Ligonier Ministry, founded by the late R.C. Sproul, put out its biannual report in partnership with Lifeway Publishing, in which the statistical data is shared on answers around various questions on God, sin, salvation, marriage, morality, and many other things. They do this by their own admission so that Christians like you and me can have the theological temperature of culture and country revealed to us. And they've broken the audience for the sake of this study into two separate groups, adults in the U.S. and evangelicals. Let me give you some examples. They're going to come up on the screen. For example, to the statement, God learns and adapts to circumstances. 51% of adults agree and 48% of evangelicals agree. To the statement, everyone is born innocent in God's eyes, 71% of adults agree and 65% of evangelicals agree. But it gets worse. To the statement, God accepts worship from other religions, including Islam, 56, let me preach, let me preach. I can feel her temperature rising. Yes, oh no. 56% of evangelicals agreed. Now you can see from the results of these completely unbiblical statements that one of two things is happening. Either people are using the word evangelical when they shouldn't be, or the evangelicals in the United States, presumably they're Christians, are completely ignorant of biblical truth, and their pastors should be immediately fired. The reality of the matter is God does not change. That's scripture. Men and women are not born innocent in his eyes. We are born sinners. We are conceived in sin. Sin that is passed down from Adam and Eve. And finally, on the last point, God says he will only receive worship through his son, Jesus Christ. He's not receiving worship from this group and that group and the other group. They're offering worship, but he doesn't receive it. Because God has ordained to only receive worship through his son, Jesus Christ. So let me say this without confusion and with absolute clarity. If you are pro-life, that is to say if you're anti-abortion, if you believe in two genders and you think that the transgender movement is nonsense, if you hold to heterosexual marriage, one man and one woman, and if you believe that premarital sex is harmful, 
and doesn't help relationships in the long term, say, say amen if you're listening, amen. you're still going to hell without Jesus Christ. This is what these statistics tell us. And we can have an argument over whether or not you should vote R or D. That's not the point. My point is this. There's a current of mentality in our culture that says, if you eat at certain places and not other places, if you buy a house in this neighborhood and you vote a certain way, then of course you're a Christian. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the word evangelical is nonsense. It's not to say that in 1950 or 1960 it didn't stand for something. What I'm trying to tell you is that statistically the word evangelical means nothing anymore. Because if evangelicals believe God can change, that they're innocent in his eyes, and that there really is no significant difference between one religion or another, they're not evangelical. It's like they should do a test before they do a test about evangelicalism. Answer these questions for me. Do you believe God can change? Well, yeah, probably. Okay, you're not evangelical. You're, you're in this group over here. And once they determine who the evangelicals are, then they, then they conduct a survey. Because the reality of the matter is, is the answers that we're getting statistically from people who are presumably in the church next to those who have no interest in God or Jesus at all is different by a small amount of degrees. Holding to conservative principles does not make someone a Christian. A Christian is someone who has, by God's grace, responded to the call of Christ to take up the cross every single day and follow him. I use this as an introduction to our study today because it reflects Something that we have to address, namely, that in order to do good, lasting good, eternal good, we must know good. Good as it is revealed in the scriptures, good as it is taught to us from God himself. So to do this today, I want to share with you two points from verses 11 and 12. The first point is the lesson, and the second point is the example. The first point is the lesson, and the second point is the example. So if you're ready, say amen. amen. Our first point this morning is the lesson, and that is the first point of our message today because that's exactly what we get from the Apostle John is a simple, to-the-point lesson. It's found in verse 11. You can read it with your eyes as I read aloud. It says, Beloved, and you remember from previous messages, loved one, good friend, person whom I adore. This, this is Gaius. This is John writing to Gaius. And he says, listen, friend, do not imitate evil, but imitate what? Good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil is not seen God. A couple of things worth Noting here, first, our lesson is based upon what we know about God. First of all, our lesson is based upon what we know about God. Whoever does good is from God because God is good. Amen? We see this throughout the scriptures. Psalm 136, verse 1 is an example. Give thanks and praise to God because he is good. But that doesn't only mean that God is good in the sense that he's kind. We would agree that God is kind, amen? 
It doesn't mean that God is good in the sense that God is long-suffering and patient with us, although that is true, amen? What is being stated here is that God is good in a moral sense. God himself is good. His person, his character, and that's what I want us to see in the second point. That James is say, excuse me, James, John is saying that God is morally upright, that we see goodness in him, and that he's morally upright. That is, he is excellent, he is praiseworthy, he is righteous. And in this sense, John is saying that those who identify with God, those who have faith in him, should reflect the goodness that is him and that he himself performs. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 is worth making a small note of. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says it this way, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. That's a, that's a verse for our current evangelicals, isn't it? Whoever says they abide in Christ ought to walk like Christ walked. I'm wondering if this verse was held on to with both hands, if the scriptures were preached the way that they were intended by God to be preached, if, the, if, if they would be 5148, if it would be 7168. No, I, I think there would be a grave difference between Adults in general, and evangelicals in particular, if the scriptures were taught in a way that said, if you believe in him and he abides in you, you ought to walk the way that he did. The reality is simple, church. It's a conflict to say that we follow a holy God, a righteous God, a good God, if at the same time we live lives that don't reflect the holiness of God the righteousness of God, and the goodness of God. This would include living how we want instead of how he wants. This would include making decisions according to our own conveniences rather than according to God's glory. Either he is good and we follow him in that goodness because we're connected to him by faith, or he is good and we are liars and we are not connected to him at all. So this command is the bedrock of what John says, namely, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. This is a lesson that we see throughout the Bible from cover to cover. The authors of the Bible have the tendency to remind their audience, both in the Old and New Testaments, that with God there is no neutral ground. We have black and we have white, we have truth, we have error. Now, there are some things that are secondary, for sure. We can disagree but still be friends, etc. But the reality of the matter is, on these issues that we've been discussing, truth, faith, Christ, there is no negotiating, and there is no neutral ground. Why? Because all truth is God's truth, amen? The morals, the ethics that he expects are a reflection of his own character. Regardless of our country, regardless of our culture, God has given to us his law and written it upon our hearts as a reflection of who he is and as a reflection of his expectation of morality. 
This is why, as Jesus said, when we do what we know we ought not do, we do it in the dark, when no one is looking, or when we're alone. I want to share with you some verses. They're going to come up on the screen. The first is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. In chapter Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, God says, I have set before you today life and death. Sorry, life and good, death and evil. I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, cease to do evil and learn to do good. Amos chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, seek good and not evil, that you may live And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. This is another issue that we're struggling with, isn't it? When we redefine terms like justice, we start to find that there is no justice anywhere ever. Romans chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything and hold fast to that which is good. Now, I share these verses with you because I want you to see the theme that is sown throughout the fabric of the Bible, namely that as the people of God, we should shun evil and we should love good. We should reject evil and we should pursue good. Where does morality come from? Is it possible for people who are non-religious to have morals? Is it possible for people who are non-Christians to have principles? And if so, does that prove that morals and principles are merely a man-made form of social or societal structure? In my mind, the answer is a very loud and resounding no. Because I believe what Genesis says that God made man and woman in his image and in his likeness. As a result, it doesn't matter if one culture or society worships our God, Yahweh, and his son, Jesus Christ, or not, because they were created, whether they like it or not, by a God who is moral, and therefore his morals and his ethics are reflected in the fact that he created man and woman in his image and in his likeness. So for a long, long time, whether it be Immanuel Kant or Friedrich Nietzsche, man has tried to explain away the reality of God in favor of human dignity, which doesn't exist without a God who thinks of us more than the sand of the seas. This is what John says. He does not say, study good and evil. He does not say ponder about good and evil. He doesn't say converse about good and evil. He doesn't even say form an opinion as far as you're concerned on the things that are good and the things that are evil. He doesn't leave us open to that interpretation, does he? He says, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Our minds, as God has made them, are sponges, always receiving, always interpreting, always learning. But since we're sinners, born in sin and affected by sin, our tendency is to learn in a twisted, selfish way. 
in a way that God never originally intended. And we have to unlearn this. We have to take our minds and we have to submit them to the glory of God. Paul said it this way, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This that I'm sharing with you today is the perfect antithesis to the statistics that I showed you earlier. If evangelicals do not think any different than the United States in general, then evangelicals are not in Christ. Because Christians don't think like the world. Christians think differently. There are a hundred other things within Christianity that are important, but are also non-negotiable and found nowhere near what we would call a neutral ground. John is commanding us, do not do evil, but do good. It's interesting. It isn't enough for you and I, according to the Apostle John in the eyes of God, to not do evil. Some of you, and I mean this graciously and kindly, some of you are doing your best to avoid any and all conflict by not doing evil, but not doing good either. You want to be that person that flies below the cultural radar, God forbid, someone ever call you out on a conviction that you have as a Christian. You might be opinionated about this thing or the other thing, but when it comes to the Word of God, you become very quiet and reserved because, well, everybody is entitled to their belief. But the reality of the matter is, is Christ has commanded us, go and make disciples of all nations. We don't have the luxury to choose when and where and with whom we will share the gospel. We have been called and commanded to share the gospel. And so it is here. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. If that isn't a verse that's appropriate today, I don't know what verse is. When words are redefined, when genders are redefined, when greater ideas that have permeated humankind throughout history like justice are redefined for the convenience of one party or another, one group of people or another, then we know that we are in dire straits and judgment is soon to come. What does the scripture say? Let justice be at the gate. We must love good as Christians and we must hate evil. You see, church, what has been will be because sinners love to define life and truth and good and evil as if God himself does not exist so that they can justify their lives. Many of you know Fyodor Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist, and in The Brothers Karamazov, he says, if God is dead, everything is allowed. And our society has been trying to kill God for a long, long time because if there is no God, then they can do whatever they want. But God isn't dead, amen? 
Not only is our God the Father not dead, but by the power of his spirit on the third day, he raised his son from the grave and he lives forevermore. And our God is commanding his people, do not imitate evil, imitate good. So we have not only there in this text the lesson, but we also have from the Apostle John an example. So let's look at verses 11 and 12 again. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good, because whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil is not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and the truth itself, and we also add our testimony. You know that our testimony is true, John says. So now we have, after the lesson, an example. When we study something theoretical, something that is rooted in an idea, it's always helpful to see that idea played out in reality, isn't it? It helps us to put our hands and our eyes on something that is only theoretically a concept before we can see it and touch it. And that's exactly what John does here. He gives us an example of what he's teaching us. In this case, the example distinguishing between good and evil, the imitating of good versus evil, is shown to us in the example of the life of Demetrius. Now, for the work we're doing this morning, there really isn't a whole lot that we need to address here. The majority of the things that need to be said have already been said, but there's a couple of things that are worthy of note, so follow me here. First, I want you to note that this is the third person that is mentioned by name in this short letter. Some 15 verses make up 3 John. There are three people that are mentioned. Gaius, who heads the letter. John, I'm speaking to Gaius. He also talks about Diotrephes, who is mentioned in verse, uh, what is this, 8? 9. In verse 9, he's mentioning Diotrephes, and then now he mentions Demetrius. Of course, Gaius, we know to be in an intimate relationship with John. John thinks highly of Gaius. He calls him his good friend. He says that you're walking in the truth. He says positive things to him. He turns the corner and he says something about Diotrephes. And of course, it's not as good what he says about Diotrephes. The only thing we know about Diotrephes is that he's arrogant, self-centered, and he leads people away from the apostolic teaching. The only thing that we know about Demetrius, on the other hand, is that everyone thinks highly of him, <laughs> that he's a good guy, that his testimony is reputable to the extent that John says, I will put my name on that testimony as well. Church, I want to say something to you, so say amen if you're listening. Your testimony matters. Your testimony matters more than you think it does. You may find it convenient to play your own faith down in public in favor of someone else's so that you might have a little bit of latitude in your decision and action. But the reality of the matter is, is even when you do that, you're creating a testimony. The only decision that you need to make, the only decision I need to make, is this. What testimony do we want to provide the world with when it comes to who God is? Are we living our lives in a way that at the end of a day, we can know beyond any shadow of doubt that the people who saw us live our lives 
know a little something more about Jesus. Our testimony matters. It means something that people, whether inside or outside of the church, have a good report with the public. We should impress those who are outside in the public. We should impress those who are inside and in the church and in the body of Christ. As humans, we're going to experience friction from time to time. There's no evading that. There's no escaping that. And as Christians, we're inevitably going to have disagreements and conflicts with people because we believe in the exclusivity of the gospel. But even with that, Paul says things like, speak the truth in love. So even when we have conflict, even when we are in an abrasive conversation with someone, they might say, I disagree with you absolutely, wholeheartedly, and emphatically, but I think you're a nice guy. I think that sometimes I'm certainly guilty of it. Perhaps you have been guilty of it on occasion as well, that we forget to make much of Jesus, and in trying to make much of Jesus, We make much of our attitude. It really comes off like I'm defending me more than I am defending my Savior, Jesus. Sometimes we can have conversations with family members or friends or coworkers or even someone on the street, and we come off as if that conversation will dictate whether or not Jesus will remain on the throne. And it simply is not the case. Whether we win a conversation or not, Jesus is on the throne, amen? Let us talk like we believe it. Let us lead our lives as if we believe it. We should be living differently. We should be speaking differently. Look at what Peter once said. Peter once wrote, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. I love this verse, and there's a couple of things that I want to pull out so that you can see, and the first of which is the word holy. Now, when we say the word holy today, we typically think of like stained glass windows, right? Maybe like water in a little plastic thing, and this is holy water. But the word holy, really, if we just dumb it down to its base meaning, means different, it means set apart, it means special. So I think what what Peter is saying here to Christians is, in your heart, set apart Christ as special, as unique as different from anything and anyone in your entire life. Before I go any further, let me ask you a simple question. In your heart, among the million and one things that you have in your heart, does Christ occupy a special place? Or is he on a shelf with a lot of other things and people? You will never be successful sharing the gospel, sharing your testimony, sharing the good news of what God has done for sinners like you and me and Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ doesn't occupy a special place in your heart. You want to be successful? You want to press your testimony into the public so that God can use your life and your testimony to reach people for Jesus? Amen? Make Jesus special. Number one, 
Number two, look at what he's saying. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Now, do you see the word defense there? That is the Greek word apologia. It's the word we get apology from. Now, we say apology, I want to apologize, and what we mean is like, I'm sorry. That's what we mean. I want to apologize, and you say, okay, I accept your apology. But the word apologia does not mean to apologize. It means to make a defense for your case. It's a courtroom term. So when you are an apologist, you are making an argument for a position that you hold. Did you get that? Peter is calling Christians to be reasonable. Set apart in your heart Christ as special and unique, and always be ready to make a good argument when someone asks you for the hope that you have. Are we prepared today to make a good argument to someone who asks us for the reason of our hope? Finally, what I want you to note in 1 Peter 3.15 is that, number one, not only do we need to set Jesus apart in a unique place in our heart in order to be successful here, but number two, we need to be ready to make a defense, an argument for our faith. But number three, we need to do it with two things, gentleness and respect. Gentleness, because if we're hard on somebody, it's not going to win the argument. And respect, because even Pagans are made in the image and likeness of God. And so when we come across someone who lives a lifestyle that is completely antithetical to Jesus, we need to be gentle, we need to show respect. When we come across someone who says, well, I believe in the Ten Commandments, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven because I've been a good person and I haven't killed anyone or molested a child. We need to be gentle and we need to show respect. When we come across someone who says, oh, so you're a Christian, so that means that you think you're better than me? What makes you better than me? We need to speak to them and give them a good defense of our faith with gentleness and respect. Every time we live our lives, God presents us with opportunities. Our problem is that we're so often self-absorbed and distracted that we fail to see the opportunities God provides. Every opportunity that comes our way, we should take with gentleness and respect, having prepared a good argument for our faith and having set apart Jesus in our hearts from everything and everyone else. Amen? So in what way could Demetrius' example be known to the church family he was a part of or the world outside? Now, there's only a little reference here to the fact that Demetrius has a good testimony. Everyone has spoken well of him. Even the truth supports the idea. And then John the Apostle says, and we want to place our stamp of approval on this because we're impressed with Demetrius' testimony too. What can we grab with our hands that might help us understand what we could implement in our own lives in order to achieve such a testimony as Demetrius. Well, I want you to turn, if you would please, to the book of Galatians. This would be backwards in the New Testament, the book of Galatians. And I want you to look at chapter 5. 
And I'll give you a second to get there. Once you get to Galatians chapter 5, say amen, but if you're not turning, you can't say amen. Ready? Galatians chapter 5. I want you to run down the chapter to verse 22. And I want you to see what the Apostle Paul teaches the church at Galatia about the fruit of the Spirit. Here in this magnificent section of Scripture, Paul says in verse 16, walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. And he tells us in verse 22 that when the Spirit is evident in our life, the kind of thing that we will see is this. Notice that the fruit of the Spirit is not the fruit of Zach or Ruth or Joe. It's not, it's not our fruit. It's whose fruit? It's the Spirit's fruit. So when these things are evident in your life, it is proof that God the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. So he says, here are the things that are evident when the Spirit is doing a work and you are submissive and humble under that work. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says after that, against these things, there is no law. What law could be written against these things? No law could be written against these things. Now, as I go through some of these qualities, I am happy to say that I have, and I say this with all humility, perfected all of them. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I have conquered pride. This is a tough list, isn't it, church? It's a tough list. Because once we start to work on love and we're like, God, God, humble me and help me to receive your love and share your love with other people. We bump into other people and then we go, oh, I can't be happy in a situation like this. That person's driving me crazy. I'll have to go back to love before I can get to joy. If it wasn't for everybody else, I could have joy. But because everybody else is here, my joy is totally compromised. So let's just say for argument's sake, we go from love and we kind of, we make a little caveat and we get through joy and then we get the peace. Well, I only have peace if I can turn off my brain. And that's not going to happen. So we're going to put a little caveat there and we go to what? Oh, patience. <laughs> I don't have time to be patient. Who's got time for patience? But I kid and we joke. But the reality of the matter is, is I think you know just as well as I do that you and I, we're not, we're not cultivating these things on our own, amen? We might have great days where we're more patient. We might have great days where we, where we are showing goodness. We might have days when we're faithful and we even finish the day going, man, I, really, I was really consistent today with the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's awesome. We should have days when we say, I wasn't as good last week as I was today. To God's glory. To close, let me say this. Regardless of what organization or ministry determines right, wrong, or neutral ground, no matter what the polls say, and regardless of what 
George Barna or any other statistician might put out. You and I are called not to the mores of our culture or society, but to the inspired and inerrant word of God. We are called to listen and to obey.